We're going to continue our series today that I've titled Live Like Mountain Folk, looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But first, I want to show you a picture. This is Hershey. Hershey was a great dog, a chocolate lab. I love chocolate labs. Uh, Hershey is the favorite, most favorite dog that I've ever had. And, um, and everyone that knew Hershey loved Hershey. Uh, at the time, when I first got Hershey, I was still running my business. I had a home office, and because of that, there were UPS and FedEx trucks that stopped by on a regular basis. And, uh, of course, those drivers always knew to bring treats along for the dogs. Well, Hershey lived for those treats, and uh, she could hear a UPS or a FedEx truck approaching from at least a block away, and as soon as she heard them, uh, she liked to sleep under my desk right at my feet. She would come barreling out from under the desk, just about knock me out of my chair, on her way to the door so she could meet the driver and get her treat. Well, as Hershey got older, she developed some food allergies. And so the day came that I had to tell the drivers that they couldn't give her the treats anymore because of her allergies. Well, uh, several weeks went by, and it was the UPS driver that uh, came to the door one day and was chuckling and told me a story. Uh, she said that she had been at the store a few days before and she'd actually gone to the pet food aisle and she was shopping for hypoallergenic dog treats specifically for Hershey. And while she was shopping, she ran into the FedEx driver who was also there shopping for the same thing. So UPS and FedEx together went shopping for dog treats for Hershey. So my favorite dog. Now this is Chica. Uh, Chica wanted to be a real dog, but she was a Chihuahua. Now why would a guy like me who loves big dogs buy a dog like Chica? Well, it's because I love my daughter. And when she was about 12 years old, she really, really, really wanted a small dog. The passage we're going to look at today is all about a loving father, an eager request, and a good gift. The text comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Let's take a look at it. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Here's the central question I think that we need to ask of this text. If it were up to God, would he give you a chihuahua if you asked him for one? Now, before you decide that I'm just being silly, let's stop and ask ourselves honestly what sorts of things immediately jump to our minds when we read those words, ask and it will be given and everyone who asks receives. Maybe the thing you would ask for is different than the heart yearning of a 12-year-old little girl for a small dog, but is it really so different? We probably all know the story of Aladdin and his magic lamp. 
you know how it goes. Aladdin finds this lamp, rubs it to put a little polish on, and suddenly a giant blue Robin Williams pops out. Oh no, wait, that's the Disney version. As the original story goes, a powerful magical genie appears out of the lamp and offers to grant Aladdin three wishes. Now, I bet that anyone who has ever read that story has paused and thought to themselves what they would wish for. Maybe you heard about the mid-level bureaucrat who one day was cleaning out some files in his Washington, D.C. office. At the back of one drawer, he found an old lantern. Now, recognizing that he was probably in a magic genie joke, he dutifully rubbed the lamp, and sure enough, out of the lamp came a genie. True to script, the genie announced that the lucky finder would receive three wishes and asked the bureaucrat for his first wish. Well, the fellow thought about it, and he replied, I would like to be rich. And poof. The guy was surrounded by piles of money. So moving on to wish number two, the happy guy said, I also wish to be on a tropical island where I will be waited on hand and foot. And instantly he found himself swinging in a hammock shaded by beautiful palm trees with a full complement of staff awaiting his orders. Well, fearing that his good fortune might only be temporary, he decided to use his third wish to seal the deal and told the genie, I don't want to do any work ever again. And just like that, he was back in his office. Well, how about you? What would it be for you? What would be your chihuahua? If we take these words of Jesus at a very literal and superficial level, it would be pretty easy to include that Jesus is making an even grander offer than Aladdin's genie. No three-wish limit. Just ask and receive. Keep asking, keep receiving. Can I be brutally honest with you for a moment? For me personally, my experience of asking God for things has often been far different. I have definitely experienced answered prayer. Burnett and I can both tell you stories of some amazing ways that God has answered prayer. There were times when we were out of cash and God provided in totally unexpected ways. There have been times when we were at a loss as to what direction to go and God opened doors that only He could have orchestrated. There have even been some silly things like chihuahuas that we've prayed about and God has blessed us with things that were just pure fun. But there have also been a lot of things I've prayed for that never worked out the way I was asking. Unfortunately, in my life, I've had several kidney stones. Now, if you've never had one, count yourself blessed. I've had women who have borne multiple children tell me that childbirth was less painful. Now, I have no idea if that is true, but I can tell you that when one of those nasty critters attacks, I have prayed some of my most sincere, tearful prayers that God would please, please, please take it away. And so far the answers to those prayers have not been the instant pain relief that I was begging for. There are friends who have held God at a distance for years that I have often prayed would come to faith and yet they still seem cold to Him. Some have even passed away into eternity seemingly without ever having made peace with God. 
I can assure you I asked. I was seeking. I knocked on heaven's door, but I didn't get what I wanted. Of course, I'm not the only one. If there was time for each of you to tell me your story of prayer, I know I'd hear many encouraging stories. I also know there are many of you who, like me, have a list of unanswered prayers that leave your heart aching and maybe more than a little suspicious that Jesus didn't really mean what he said. I find a little encouragement, though it is dark encouragement, knowing that Jesus himself didn't receive everything he asked for either. Here's an earnest prayer of Jesus that he prayed the night before he went to the cross. A prayer prayed under such emotional distress that it says Jesus broke out in an intense sweat that actually had blood mixed into it, a condition known as hematuridosis. This from Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. It says, In going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I don't know, but being sent to a cross to die doesn't sound like a good father giving a good gift to a good son when the thing the son asked for was to not go. However, I think Jesus knew, even as he preached his sermon on that mountainside, that the cross lay ahead directly in his path. He uttered those words about asking, seeking, and knocking with the full awareness of the excruciating, deadly task his father had assigned him. Since I don't believe Jesus was trying to sell his students a phony bill of goods by promising something he knew wasn't true, then it makes me pause and ask if maybe he was talking about asking for something more than chihuahuas. One of the dangers of working our way through this sermon slice by slice the way we've been doing it is that we can lose sight of the big pie. If we go all the way back to Matthew 4 verse 17, we read this little thumbnail sketch that Matthew gave to sum up the core of Jesus' preaching. He said, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Two things, Matthew says, anchored everything that Jesus had to say. First, God's kingdom was about to break into the world, something the nation of Israel had long hoped and prayed for. Second, while everybody said they wanted God's kingdom to come, they weren't ready for it. The course of their lives overall was out of step with the cadence of God's kingdom. In fact, they weren't just marching off beat, they were marching in the wrong direction. They needed to repent, to turn around and go in an entirely new direction. I contend that we aren't reading the Sermon on the Mount correctly if we lose sight of those two emphases. Now, once again, we get into the sermon itself, and what do we find? Well, Jesus started with a series of blessing statements, remember? He said the people who are living in a blessed condition aren't those who are getting every chihuahua their heart desires. Rather, he said a blessed life is a life characterized by a heart that is humble and a soul that is hungry to be more righteous, 
To live with purity, to make peace in an angry world, to endure even persecution in their pursuit of holiness. Then he launched into this startling discussion of what it really means to live right. He took a series of common moral teachings, things rooted right in the laws of Moses, but corrupted over time by religious teachers who had found clever ways to look like they were doing right, but at the same time harboring hatred, lust, pride, and greed in their hearts. And his message was the same every time. Repent. What God wants is a heart that is clean to the core, not just a pretty veneer of piety. The people who are eager for the kingdom of God should be people who long, hunger, and thirst to have their hearts made clean. He followed that by critiquing three of the key religious practices of those who professed religious devotion. Giving to the poor, offering regular prayers, and weekly fasting as a spiritual discipline. While the acts themselves were good, Jesus had no respect for those who did them in a way that was designed to attract attention to themselves. He called those kinds of people hypocrites, phony actors who were simply putting on a show rather than truly pursuing and honoring God. In critiquing shallow prayer practices, he also gave a model prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, and in it he laid out four requests. He prayed that God's kingdom would come and his will be done. Remember, that was a core part of his teaching, that God's kingdom was about to come. Second, he prayed that God would provide our daily bread. So, there's nothing wrong with praying about needs, though he said nothing about chihuahuas. A third, that God would forgive us as we forgive others. Again, his other core teaching was repentance. And the person who repents and seeks forgiveness must also be a person who is willing to grant the same to others. Finally, he prayed for protection from temptation. Having repented from pursuing wrong paths in our past, he teaches us to pray that we will be protected from taking wrong paths once again in the future. Well, next up in the sermon, he counseled his students that part of preparing themselves for God's kingdom means choosing where to invest their energies either in the pursuit of shiny things that rust and break and get stolen, or in giving themselves to things of eternal value, the love and service of others for the sake of God's kingdom. Along with that, he counseled them not to let their concern about future things that may or may not happen rob them of living today in joyful obedience. He reminded them that the same God who provides for wild birds and little flowers which have no control over their futures is also the good Father that watches over them, and they are worth far more to Him than sparrows and daylilies. Finally, just before he talks about asking, seeking, and knocking, he warns against judging others. Keeping the focus on personal repentance, he counsels that before we attempt to help others with the little defects we see in them, we should first deal with the huge defects that reside in ourselves. Something he described 
very poetically as having a log stuck in your eye versus the speck you may see in someone else's. Now, with that context, the, the big picture of this sermon, do you think that Jesus' audience was thinking about chihuahuas when he suggested they could ask, seek, and knock, and their good father would give them what they desired? I don't know about you, but if I were sitting on that mountainside, having just heard all of this, the last thing on my mind would be chihuahuas. I'd be feeling some deep conviction. I'd be feeling a need to repent. That was Jesus' goal. I'd be pondering how often my motives are purely self-serving. I'd be feeling the weight of the anger that I sometimes harbor feeling shame over the lustful thoughts that I can entertain. I'd be feeling embarrassed about the churchy things I've done that were motivated more by wanting to be admired than to simply serve. I'd be feeling conflicted about some of my life goals, things I would have to admit were more about laying up treasure on earth than in heaven. I'd be feeling convicted about my critical spirit toward others, and my deplorable willingness to keep excusing my own most glaring faults. And if I cared one iota about wanting to really live as a citizen of God's kingdom, you know what I'd be praying about? Well, it wouldn't be chihuahuas. No, I'd be on my knees asking God, please forgive me. I'd be holding up my hands and seeking for God to create in me a new heart. I'd be knocking on the doors of heaven, asking God to open them up and let me in. Not because I deserve it, but simply because He is a good and kind Father. Interestingly, Luke, in his Gospel, relates this same sermon, but he recounts it slightly differently. Quite possibly, it's a sermon that Jesus gave more than once. Or it may have been that as Jesus taught his disciples, they came to understand more fully what he meant. Either way, look at how Luke recounts it in Luke 11:13. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What does the Holy Spirit do in us? What good things does He bring? Scripture tells us the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. He fills and empowers our lives to follow Jesus. He gifts and enables us to serve others. He brings healing to our brokenness and leads us in knowing God's will. I conclude that what the true follower of Jesus wants more than anything else the thing they seek for, ask for, pound on the door of heaven to obtain, is to be filled, led, convicted, and empowered to serve by God's Holy Spirit. I often hear people talking about praying for revival, praying that God would move in powerful ways to redeem, reverse, and restore the decaying foundations of our culture. Now, I'm all for God doing that. And there are plenty of examples in history where God has moved in powerful, miraculous ways that resulted in hundreds, 
thousands of people coming into a life-transforming relationship with Him. But here's my concern with some of our prayers for revival. They too often are prayers for them and that. We want God to turn them around, other people, you know, the sinners we live with. We want God to fix that, the sins of our society. Not to be a downer, but I have some serious doubts that God is going to save our society. The people who sat there listening to Jesus 2,000 years ago certainly wanted their society saved. And yet within 40 years of when Jesus preached this message, the crown jewel of Jewish society, Jerusalem itself, would be decimated by Rome. And Rome itself, despite becoming a Christian empire, is now little more than an interesting chapter in our history books. Here is what God wants. He wants you. And He wants you to want Him. And to want to be to the core of your being a person who lives with humility, actively turning away from a life lived for self and hungering to be filled with His Spirit. He wants you to ask Him to reform your heart. He wants you to seek to know and live out His priorities in every sphere of your life. He wants you to pound on the doors of heaven, to call out with every fiber of your being, I want to be your man. I want to be your woman. I want your kingdom to come. I want your will to be done in me. And the promise is that our God is a good father. If we open ourselves to him, he's not going to abuse us. If we offer to give him our best, he's not going to cheat us or trick us and give us his worst. That doesn't mean God may not call us to hard things. He called his dearly loved son to a cross. But even the hard things are not an end in themselves. The promise is that if we truly seek him, the final result will be the goodest good a good father can give, even better than a chihuahua. Listen, I know there are still lots of questions we all have about why God seems to say yes to some prayers and no to others. I know that some of us have prayed prayers for things of immense importance. They weren't Chihuahua kind of prayers. And I don't mean to brush those very real questions aside. I know I don't have all the answers myself. But I also know that God does amazing things when individuals bring their whole selves to Him and ask Him to change them from the inside. If we're going to live like mountain folk, then we need to learn to want some stuff, really important stuff, the right stuff, personal stuff. We need to ask for it, seek it, knock on heaven's door for it. Our burning prayer will be, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth in me, just as it is in heaven. Amen.